We're taking a little look into the Psalms of Ascent. That's the portion of the books of, book of Psalms that um, was sung by the children of Israel as they made their way three times a year up to Jerusalem. The Psalms have been called the song book or the prayer book of the Bible. And just as this song has instructed us, um, prayer is a two-way conversation between us and God. It is a dance, as we said several weeks ago, between us and three partners who move as one. It's a marvel that we're invited into the fellowship of the Trinity, even in these days, in our prayers, in our times alone with God. Um, it is beyond our understanding, and yet it engages our imagination in a beautiful way. So three times a year, uh, the children of Israel would travel as families and tribes to Jerusalem. Uh, one time was at Passover, one time was for Pentecost, the third time was for Tabernacles, and they were during the spring, two of them, and the third one in the autumn. One of the songs that they would sing, would chant, would recite, um, is Psalm 130. We saw Psalm 121 last week, which was asking the question, where does my help come from? And as they looked to the mountaintops, they would see the stones and the sticks of pagan gods and would realize that the Canaanites around them would be turning to these gods for help. And so the psalmist meditates and says, where does my help come from? And the profound answer is, my help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. The one who made these stones, the one who made these sticks is the one that gives me help. And so there's a lovely psalm um, of meditation. And so as the journey would have been treacherous at times, um, tiresome, and there would be the typical things like kids getting sick, kids not sleeping, all those things that we endure on road trips. Uh, they did as well in different kinds of forms. What I want to do this morning is just return with you to the, the discipline of Lectio. So Lectio Divina is a way of reading scripture so that we are actually actively listening. We are meditating on truth, but we're also listening for God to speak to us. And it is something that academically we would probably say we know that God does talk to us, but practically we wonder, does he ever really talk to us? Um, those voices in my head, whose voices are they? Are they God? Or are they just my head doing things? And the answer is both of the above, right? But the second is, or the first, is a reality that God does want to speak to us. He always wants to speak to us. And he's never left wondering, oh, what should I say now? He always has something pertinent. He always has something relevant. He always has something wise that he would plant into our minds. So we're going today to read this psalm together in that sense that we're going to be listening for what God wants to say to each of you and what God might want to say to us collectively. And this is not magic. It's not, um, you know, voodoo. It is simply saying God has spoken and he wants to keep on speaking with the words he has already spoken. So we imagine ourselves on the travel uh, with the children of Israel, making our way up to Jerusalem, and we are singing this song, and God is speaking to his people Israel as they sang this song, 
and he will speak to us as we sing it this morning. So we're going to actually read this three times through. The first time through, I'm going to read it, and I invite you to listen for a word or a phrase or an idea that sort of jumps out at you, and then you can call that out after we have read it through the first time. Second time we will read it through, I'll make some comments, and that's not uh, proper to Lectio. I'm not supposed to be inserting my opinions, but I will because I get to be here, right? The third time we're going to read it as we take communion, and we will trust um, that God's presence with us um, will be very special this morning. Um, the, the Lord's Supper, um, communion, the bread and wine, the Lord's table, as we variously call it, we in our tradition are often too careful to say there's nothing special about this matzo and juice. And that's right. It does not become something else. Except spiritually and mystically, it is the, the most precious bread and wine that we take. The presence of Jesus is at the table. Various friends of mine will make comments about the way um, God has shown up for them. I had a lovely friend, a Catholic priest. He was a leader in the charismatic movement in Toronto. And his name was Bill Comerford. And one time I said to him, Bill, what happens at the Mass? And he said, well, I know what you think happens. It doesn't happen at the Mass. I don't know for sure what happens at the Mass. I know what we believe. But I know that when I pray for people over the Mass, they get healed. When I pray for them apart from the Mass, they don't get healed. And I thought, hmm. Another friend also said that in the, the Lord's table setting, that's where God seems to meet people, and he has seen various folks healed at the table. So those are just anecdotes, but they say that, okay, this is just ordinary bread and wine, but it's not ordinary. And so as we take it this morning, let's believe that God is here, that the presence of Jesus is with us, as it always is, but remarkably is at the table. And let's hear what he might like to say to us from this psalm as we join him at his beautiful table. So here's the psalm. I will read it slowly, and I invite you to live. There are two slides, so if you don't get something in the first slide, don't panic. There's another slide coming. Um, but just listen for a word, a phrase, an idea, and let that kind of lodge in your mind and in your heart. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from their sins. Call out words, phrases, ideas that have come to your mind. Summon this first verse of the pair. Say again. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Perfect. 
mercy, redemption, hope. Depression? Hmm. I wait. out of the depths. It might just be a fascinating idea, a word that you think, I'm going to go home and think about that one, or look that one up, study that one. Wait. Unfailing love. Hope. Let me read it again and I will insert some of my thoughts. Out of the depths I cry to you. Out of the depths is, is that just desperate situation of, of depression, as David says, or sadness or grief. Uh, who of us has not been in the depths? And when we're in the depths, what are we likely to do? What am I likely to do? The last thing I'm likely to do is cry to the Lord. I'll cry to myself. I'll cry to everybody else. I'll try to figure out a way. I'll blame myself, I'll blame somebody else. But the psalmist says, out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. And does he? Or how many times have we felt like we pray, but we're not really sure that he hears us? We think that my voice, out of millions of voices, how can he hear my voice? But the psalmist prays with the inspiration of the Spirit, prays a prayer that can be answered, and that prayer includes, please hear my voice. Would you please listen to me? A lot that we need to learn in following Christ is the kind of the demeanor of children, right? If you have a little child who wants you to listen to her or him, how quickly do they give up if you don't pay attention? Not very quickly, right? They will tug, they will tug, they will tug, they will keep on. And even when someone else is speaking, they will keep on interrupting, interrupting, interrupting. And the beauty of the Christian life in one respect is that God is our Abba. And the way that our little children relate to us can be instructive about how we relate to him. Jesus told stories that were kind of ridiculous. Like there was this widow and she kept on bugging a judge and he finally said, not because he agreed with her cause, but because she wouldn't stop bugging him, right? Jesus said, that's what you should be like. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And th there's a good beginning for the prayer out of the depths, right? Lord, hear what I'm praying. Hear my cry for mercy. Mercy. Um, Andrew talked about centering prayer a few weeks ago. Um, 
the, the prayer that I pray often is, it's called the Jesus prayer. It's been forever. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it is an encompassing prayer that says, I, I know who you are. You are Lord Jesus Christ. You are the Son of God. I need mercy. I am sinful. And saying it over and over can, can bring me to a place of quiet and dependence. I love this next idea. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Isn't that brilliant? If God kept a record of our sins, what chance would any of us have? Uh, Tim Keller, in his, his book, The Reason for God, it, it's a brilliant book, but in part, it's he in, in the second, second half of the book, talks about the, the need for God, the need for salvation, the need for forgiveness. He talks about two conditions. Um, the one is the condition of being a moralist, and the second is the condition of being a confessing sinner, so to speak. And the moralist is the one that is trickiest to deal with, and I think actually represents mostly how we tend to relate to God in our need for forgiveness. The moralist tries to live the best life he or she could live. Most people around us would say they try to live the best kind of life, right? Not very many people will confess that they are narcissists or they're um, whatever. Most people will say, I, I try to live a good life. I mean, I try to treat people like I should be treated. I, I try to be nice and kind and Canadian, right? The moralist counts on that, whereas the sinner doesn't count on it. And even in, in, in our condition of being forgiven our sins and being followers of Jesus, oftentimes I think we, we just revert back to trying to do the best we can do. Because the other one is, is kind of a nasty perspective, right? The, the other perspective, which is the, the biblical perspective, is that there's no sense in trying to live a moral life. It won't work. Try as hard as you will to be the best person you can be. And apart from what I'll comment about in a moment, there's no chance. And yet, that is often um, kind of the default way that we relate to God because we, we, we tend to view our lives and, and survey them and say, I think I'm doing quite well. I mean, I, th I think I'm a better person than I was last year. I think I've learned more things than I knew before this year. And so in, in that sense, we're sort of, it, it's like we feel like we can negotiate with God and say, so are, are you happy with me now? Because fundamentally, I have this doubt that God really does love me and really has accepted me. So I'm going to keep on trying to make him love me and make him accept me. Now, if I'm the only one that feels this way, just write it off. But I think a lot of us go back to uh, what Paul in the New Testament challenges and says, you began by faith. How are you going to finish by works? Like, how is what God started 
going to be your job for the rest of your life. Now, the truth is that we have been thoroughly recreated, and at the core of our being, we actually do want to do good. We do love God. We do love his ways. But in our head, we sometimes don't rest in that, but we rest in the accomplishments that we think still are impressive. We still live so that people will think well of us or will think what we would like them to think of us. Um, we worry about what everyone thinks of us. And the truth is they don't think of you very often, so don't worry so much, right? But the biblical perspective is that in ourselves, we have nothing. We bring nothing to the table. Nothing at all. We end up saying, I've got nothing. And I am not much of a Calvinist, but a Calvinist um, will go to his uh, or her five tulip steps. And it needs to be negotiated into a, a more biblical and acceptable theology. But one of the things that, that they will talk about is the total depravity of humankind. That is the greatest offense to humankind, our total depravity. How bad are we? Twice in the Bible, once in the Psalms, once in Romans, God says this, every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. That's a lot of superlatives, right? Every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. It says, God came down to see if there was anyone righteous, anyone who searched after him. And what, what did he find? Not even one. Well, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? Because in, in ourselves, we think, we're, really, are we that bad? I mean, is every thought of your heart always evil continually? There's some people in I would like to judge him that way. Oh, I've, every thought of his heart is only evil, continue. I can tell he's... We don't like to think that of ourselves or of our brothers and sisters around us. But when we understand that having found us in that condition, God forgave us. When, when, when we get to the place of accepting that we can do absolutely nothing good in our, in our fallen human state. Then we're ready to say, you know, yeah, I need help. The songs of ascent are largely about help. Where does my help come from? We're not likely to ask for help, like I said last week, especially guys, not likely to ask for help. We need help from God. And God says, when you basically say, I can do nothing, I have nothing, then I'll show up. But as long as you say, I think I can do this, or I'm going to try this, or I think I have the resources, when you're trying to do that in your strength, um, it won't work. You need to come to the place practically and regularly of saying, I can't do this. What you're praying for, you can't make happen. 
what you want to become, you can't make yourself become. It's all by the grace of God. And the more we understand our own actual depravity, the more we will celebrate God's grace and mercy. So we then can say like the psalmist, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? And we stand and we raise our hands and say, yeah, you know what, as I think about yesterday, if you kept a record of what I thought yesterday, I would be toast. If you noticed what I did yesterday and wrote those things down, I'd be filled with shame. Who could stand before an absolutely perfect, eternal, beautiful God with any little bit of sinfulness in him or her? Who who could survive that? One of the ironies is that the, the closer we get to God, the more sinful we feel, right? Because we get close to him and we see more and more his grandeur, his beauty, his holiness. And the little things that we might have excused before, we say, well, I, I ought not to excuse that. that. That does not fit who I am as a new creation in Christ. So, Lord, if you kept record of sins, who could stand? And then a huge but. But with you, there is forgiveness. When we know we need forgiveness, when I know I need forgiveness for all those things on the list from yesterday, from the list of my whole life, when I know that I need forgiveness um, and realize that there is forgiveness with God, the biblical doctrine of forgiveness in the New Testament, is it's, it's the word to send away. In the Old Testament, it's, it's the scapegoat notion of, of, of the animal. It's that God recognizes the sinfulness and he sends it away. He sends it away as far as the east is from the west, right? And how far is that? Too far. With you, there is forgiveness so that we can, and the King James says, fear you. Um, And fear is not to be afraid of God, it's to revere him. And when we understand that if he kept a record of our wrongs, we're finished. But he doesn't because he gives us forgiveness instead. Therefore, we can live in fear of the Lord. We can live in, in, in the reverence of our relationship with God. So I wait for the Lord. And I wait for the Lord with all of these things in the back of my mind and treasured in my heart. My whole being waits. Wait is a beautiful word. We don't like to wait. We don't like to wait for anything. I ordered something online. It hasn't come. Like it's been four or five days. And I'm checking. I'm tracking it. Where is it? Why did it not come yesterday? Why didn't I order that can be delivered by tomorrow if you pay the extra Right? We don't wait. We're a weightless society. We want everything now. So we just you know, take our credit card out, we tap it, and it's, it's done. Right? But the psalmist says, my whole being is waiting. And maybe waiting patiently, 
but but it's certainly it's it's waiting and it knows my whole being knows that I'm in a stage of waiting and as I wait I put my hope in his word so waiting with hope is a beautiful kind of image right we're, we're waiting but we're not waiting to see if something will happen we're not waiting hoping something will happen but the biblical notion of hope is to have our our weight fixed on something real in in the future um, the Christian hope is not a, kind of a helpless hoping the Christian hope is a fixed hope uh, it, it's the hope of faith it's the hope of, of intimacy with God that knows something. And it might not come to me yet, but I know it's there. My hope is in what God is going to do. And so how do we hope? There's, here's a lovely image. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Probably the watchmen are the watchmen on the walls in, in the city of Jerusalem and the, the towns around Jerusalem. And those watchmen wait for the morning. Have, have you had times when you, when you actually saw the sunrise? And Phil, when we were going to, wherever we were going to, Lebanon, I remember sitting at the back of the airplane watching the sunrise because we were flying either into or out of the sun, I have no idea. But you sort of wait and then all of a sudden, the sun comes up, right? Or you're on a road trip with your kids and you're actually driving through the night, and it is four in the morning, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, how much longer? And then it gets to be like six o'clock, and the sun begins to rise. Um, what if the sun never rose? I mean, we're sure it's going to, right? I know we're going to fly into it. I know we're going to drive into it. I know that if I just sit out on, on my porch and wait, the same place in the sky, the sun will come up every morning. So here are these watchmen, and they're not in despair. They're not saying, I don't think the sun is going to come up this day. And they go, come on, you're crazy. The sun always comes up. But they wait with, with this great anticipation that says, the night has felt really long, but we're hoping for the sunrise. We're waiting for the sunrise. He repeats it. He says, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And then here's what it's about. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord is unfailing love. It's that beautiful word, chesed, which is his covenant love. The, the love and faithfulness and mercy and grace that he has invested in his relationship with us that he has made part of our transaction, that he will always be a God of chesed, a God of unfailing love. One psalm says, um, every morning I'll thank the Lord for his unfailing love, and in the evening I will thank him for his faithfulness. It means in the morning I will say, I'm going to count today on your covenant loyalty, and in the evening I'm going to say thank you, because you proved your faithfulness all day long to me. With him is full redemption. If God kept a record of our sins, but with him there is full redemption. Like, we got the whole package. We didn't get half of it. We didn't get it reluctantly. Um, we, we were given full redemption. Um, 
full adoption. We, we, we're fully received as full sons and daughters of the living eternal God. And the psalmist ends by saying, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Guilt plagues us, doesn't it? Shame plagues us. It shows up all the time. It shows up when someone says to us, yeah, you always. And we go, yeah, you're right. Or you never. And we say, I know. Or um, I'm never going to be able to forgive you for this. Or I will forgive you, but I'll never forget. And we, we just nod our heads and say, I know, I know, I know. But with God, there's nothing like that. Like, he will, he will not ever remind us of the, the details of our sinfulness. He, he won't ever bring it up. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, and he will show up to try to accuse us. That's the drama of, of Job. Um, Satan comes to God. I don't know how that ever happened or why. But he, he came and um, God said to him, I, I know you're here to, to rat on everybody that you've been you know, kind of chasing around. Have you thought about Job? And Satan says, let me at Job and I will get him to curse you. Satan comes to accuse. He will come to accuse you. He will first of all do it in your own head. He will remind you of how rotten you are, of how if people really knew what was inside your mind and heart, they wouldn't probably even talk to you. But when he shows up to God and says, so-and-so did something, God will figuratively say, he did? I forgot that. I forgot that he did it. And Satan's got a long, long memory. He can drag up all stuff from the past, and God will say, no. And Jesus is at the right hand of God saying to Satan, I died for that. It's paid for. You can't bring it up. You can't collect any debt because it is thoroughly, thoroughly paid for. Totally forgiven. Totally forgotten. Never to be mentioned again. Not even in a sense that we show up in heaven and God says, well, even though you and all the things, still I forgave you. That first part never happens, never will happen. He won't say, even though. He will say, because my son, you are welcome in my family, you are welcome in my home. Because all that stuff he paid for it. It was certainly paid for. It was certainly wrong. It was certainly harmful. But it's been paid for. And now I have made you someone new who is not that person at the core of his being or her being. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins.